welcome to a special bonus interview of Directors Club. I'm your host, Jim Laskowski, and in lieu of a director-centric horror-themed episode this month, like you probably expected, it's kind of been a bit of a horror show due to uh, a lot of things going on in the world and our lives, and it's been a lot of loss. Uh, it's, it's just been uh, an unreal dark time. <laughs> And it's like I always expect October to be the month where I feel um, a sense of joy and uh, uplift because, yeah, it's uh, the weather cools down, get to get out the hoodie and uh, enjoy a lot of horror films. But honestly, I haven't had time to do that. But it's okay. I want to focus on the positive as well because there is a truly wonderful film festival taking place online, virtually, via streaming, for all of you to access. And if you're listening to the sound of my voice, please, I implore you to check out and support Mental Filmness. Now, you probably heard this title um, and a lot about this particular project when my guest the lovely Sharon Gissy came on for the Chantal Ackerman and Todd Haynes episode. She told you all about this nonprofit she started that focuses on showcasing a lot of great films from many creative artists who are mainly focusing their stories on mental health and mental illness coming from a very personal place, telling their stories, um, which are often about struggles, but not all of them are, you know, dark and depressing. There's uh, stories of resilience and strength and, you know, certainly dark humor along the way. There's just a lot of a varying degree, a lot of um, titles that range from, you know, a, a romantic comedy, perhaps, to something a little scary. Uh, if you if you. Invest time in this festival. I guarantee you'll find something you'll enjoy. Something in the shorts, blocks, or, uh, you know, and again, these are short films. You, you don't have to watch them all back to back to back to back. You can watch it. Just take 15 minutes. You'll find something uh, from this festival that will likely click with you in some way. I know I have many times. Um, and a film that, uh, is the main focus of the episode coming up is an example of, a, of something that I did really enjoy and respond to in a lot of ways. Uh, and we'll get to that, of course. Click on the link in the show notes for Mental Fillness and just sign up. All you have to do is put in your email. It's totally free. Uh, I don't expect you to watch every single title, but there's a couple in particular that I want you to see um, as soon as possible within the next two weeks. Cause I believe the final day might be November 6th, if I'm not mistaken. So you still got a couple weeks to jump on this the way I have. Uh, you can find this. I mean, I wrote a full review for the first time in a while because this film affected me so deeply. It's a short film that you can find in the first shorts block of mental filmness, and it's called Just In Case. And it's a simple story about a father and daughter talking in a truck stop diner about what's on their mind. And it includes uh, some incredible 
dialogue about how the daughter is continuing to struggle every single day with dark thoughts and uncertain mood swings. And it's one of the more riveting, heartbreaking short films I've seen in a while. Uh, I sang its praises all over social media for a reason. And I think (laughs) you cinephiles out there should seek out this other title, which comes courtesy of today's guest, Philip Brubaker, whose last name almost rhymes with filmmaker, if you think about it. Uh, And that's an apt title for him because his new film is called How to Explain Your Mental Illness to Stanley Kubrick. And I hope by saying that title and you seeing it in the um, title for this episode, (laughs) you'll be curious. I'm hoping you are because it highlights Phil's uh, personal experience with bipolar disorder. Uh, along with an in-depth look, I would say, at how Stanley Kubrick has portrayed mental health in the majority of his work. There's even a bit of critique in there. Um, And I think a lot of that stems from his experience as a video essayist. And you'll definitely see that contained within this film. And gosh, there is a plethora of of great work from the past to choose from in, in terms of his video essays. I'll give you a sh- you know a sampling of that in the show notes as well. But you should follow him uh, on Twitter and visit his Vimeo. Uh, he's just yeah re- remarkably talented here, and you'll see that within his new film. Uh, but my goal coming up is to do a special directors club next month in honor of Sergio Mims. Do it in the spirit and style that I think he would appreciate. Um. We'll get to that next month. I'm hoping that can actually happen. I know things just get crazier once the holidays roll around, but you're going to get an episode from Bill uh, in in December, and you're likely going to get an episode from me in November if, you know, schedules align the way I hope. And I just want to reiterate again the importance of mental filmness for a lot of reasons that I've already discussed and told you about. You know, this is something I struggle with every day. It's something I try to bring awareness to, break the stigma associated with it, and also just champion people like Sharon who are doing work like this in order to connect others to these independently produced films that, you know, cover really sensitive topics and issues that we need to be aware of and experience. And, you know, you're going to get a lot out of it. I guarantee it. By supporting the festival, you are making a difference by just simply putting in your email, signing up, and hopefully checking out the work of many talented directors. Like Philip, who is responsible for something very special. I think you'll enjoy it. Seek it out. We um, definitely talk about his latest film and so much more during this delightful conversation. He uh, has filmed a number of experimental films. Uh, films and documentaries and shorts. Uh, he's studied screenwriting, editing, directing. Uh, he put out in 2009 a documentary called Brushes with Life, Art, Artists, and Mental Illness. It won multiple awards within the film industry, screened at the very first Mental Filmness, and aired statewide on public television. So 
He's garnered a lot of acclaim over the years, including for his work as a video essayist. My first introduction to him was due to the fact that he did an essay on one of my favorite directors and films, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, of course, in which he sort of found correlations between Punch Drunk Love and The Long Goodbye. And there's he's got uh, a countless amount of examples of things like that that um, I highly recommend. He's hitting the festival circuit now with this very well-observed, funny, meta-layered film in which the title kind of says it all, and you can stream it all uh, once again via Sharon Gissy's Mental Filmness Film Festival. Let's hear all about this fine talent. Please enjoy my talk with Philip Brubaker, and thank you so much for listening. I've been well. Um, this is like a very, very busy time for me. Um, sure. The the film has gotten a lot of attention, which has been great. And then on top of that, I'm preparing to go to a art sale next weekend and sell a bunch of my still photography that, that I've been amassing over the years. Oh, I'd like to see some of that. You have like a, I should have asked this ahead of time. Do you have like a website that like showcases everything well, or? Not anymore because um, I got deeply into still photography in like the, the 2000s and then right around the end of that decade and the beginning of 2010 i i kind of stopped doing still photography that uh, as much because i was in doing film and i was making moving images um, right and so i didn't i did not really return to the the still photography even though i really love it i yeah i i certainly have become of that generation of yeah, I know I take photos using my iPhone. <laughs> that too. That's but, been another reason why. Yeah, you know, and it's hard because now everybody who has an Instagram is suddenly a photographer, but I kind of go, uh, I don't know. I, I'd like to think I'd add some artistic flourish to when I do do these things. I'm not just, you know, shooting a, my you know, food plate and like sure. uploading it for everyone to see. I'm trying to think of interesting images. Yeah. And but, I, think, um, uh, I think when you're using a camera, you instinctively want to do better than oh, yeah. you with your phone. And uh, yeah, I think that uh, since I started taking pictures with my phone exclusively uh, for Instagram, like I think I haven't been making serious photographs anymore. And mm. the other thing is, uh, if I were to bring a still camera out in public to do like street photography, I, w- what I have encountered is a lot of hostility and, and question oh, interesting. about yeah, like, yeah. Hey, why'd you take a picture of my house, man? You know, and it's like, well, you know, really has, has nothing to do with you, sir. It's just this interesting thing. that's on your garage door. And, you know, people, people are, are they more wary? I find of having pictures taken of them or their property. You know, it was so weird, and I can't even remember what what was on this particular license plate. But I know it was a movie reference, or it could have been, it could have even said Herzog on it. Mm. <laughs> and I just took a photo of it once while I was in a, a parking lot of this grocery store, and of course, the owner of the car saw me do that and just yeah. freaked out. You know, yeah. and I was just like. It's a, I'm sorry. It's a director's name, and I just wanted to upload it to my Facebook and show everybody. But then, of course, 
you know yeah, yeah th- there's that yeah very people are very reactionary it's interesting to hear that you've had and, that experience because i thought it might have something to do with the fact that i live in florida but if this <laughs> is a nationwide issue then it would make sense too uh no i think people are just they automatically label label you as being invasive or you're trying to steal their identity or any number of things nowadays because and rightfully so there's so many ways that people try to mm-hmm. yeah d- do harm <laughs> you know yeah and uh street photography in particular is my personal favorite type of photography mm. and it goes back to some of my heroes like Henri Cartier-Bresson who was one of the great magnum photographers in Paris and, and uh, throughout France and the world. And his strategy back in like the forties and fifties was you take the photo and then you scram. So <laughs> you, you, you know, I mean, hmm. he was aware obviously that people would even back then would probably be you know questioning as to what his intentions were. So it's better just to get the shot and get out of there. And I think that I, I just love the street photography, people like Robert Frank, as well as Cartier-Bresson, mm-hmm. like people who just like capture some of the most human moments that happen in, in urban spaces. And Cartier-Bresson in particular was so good. He never had to crop any of his photos. He said, you just do it right in the moment wow. and you have it. And And if you look at them, you can see how he leads your eye from one place to another in the image. And he was just like so good at just making a document of, of life and making it art as well. Sure. Now I'll look that up for sure. I, I, it's interesting. You bring that up. And for some reason, what popped in my head is Larry Cohen, because he would just sort mm. of gorilla style, take the camera out into the busy New York streets and just shoot almost, yeah. almost. Yeah. Verite, like just kind of like I'm doing this in the moment. I want every, like, I just want to capture that energy of real people hanging around. Uh, and also to the point maybe where people were confused. <laughs> yeah, and also maybe not have to deal with permits too and the fees. Involved. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think even William Friedkin might have done that for for uh, French Connection, possibly. I know he's told stories yeah. about that. I don't know something. I, I know it's something. It sounds wild. crazy. It's crazy, but yeah. I think that the famous car chase scene in French Connection, where he's chasing the elevated train, I I think that was all like not staged like they actually were driving like that with the camera on top of the car that's insane that's just (laughs) insane (laughs) yeah you gotta have a certain amount of cojones to do that no kidding well let's just start from the beginning why don't we (laughs) since i want to sort of integrate it into um you know Mm -hmm. sharon's wonderful film festival that she's got going on and sort of give people a an opportunity within the last couple of weeks to hopefully check out some titles. That's why I've been retweeting a lot and mm-hmm. trying to support it because I actually do like a lot of the films that she yeah. selected, you know? Um, but you certainly have had quite the CV with so much output. Like you said, what 110 video essays or yeah, more about that? that much. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. I have so much to catch up with because from what I've seen, I consider me a fan. I I'm very impressed with everything oh, and we seem to have similar taste, <laughs> but yeah. um, no, just take me back to the very beginning where you became a cinephile. I, I always like to ask how this obsession with, with film mm-hmm. began. Was there a particular film or director or was it just like a series of uh, encounters with certain films? How did well, it all begin? Well, I'll take you back to when I was a kid because that's really where it started. And I can tell you that, 
for as long as I've been sentient, as long as I've had thoughts <laughs> and desires and memories, I've always wanted to be a filmmaker. And I've always kind of known movies were the most interesting thing to me in life. And I wanted to be the person who makes them. And my mom said that when I was like six years old, I asked her who makes the movie. Cause after we watched these movies and she got me a book about like a video guide to movies on, on VHS. And I, after, after I asked her who makes movies, she said, well, that it's the director really who, who does it. And then I said, well, I want to be a director. And um, so I went from like that to watching tons of movies and loving movies and making short films of my own and watching the Oscars every year and, and enjoying the Chuck Workman montages that he would do occasionally, um, which were like proto supercuts. Actually um, they were kind of like the first video essays I ever saw without knowing that that's what I would be doing years later. Uh, I thought I would be making movies, but uh, I got into film school as an undergrad and around the same time, I unfortunately had a mental collapse and mm. I was hospitalized and I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And so I had to leave school. And while I was recuperating with living with my parents, um, I started to get into still photography some more because it was a little bit easier to do than making a film. Sure. And I started to do really well with that. And I had a few art shows with my still photography and it seemed like that's what I was going to do. But as I was getting my strength back and my confidence back, I decided, no, I want to make movies. That's really what my interest is in. And I made a short documentary about some artists that I knew who were part of the art gallery that I would be showing my, my photos at, um, which was part of a, a psychiatric hospital in North Carolina. And so this was the, the, it was called the brushes with life art gallery. And so I made a, a like a half hour movie that interviewed right seven different artists who had various diagnoses and they had various uh, mediums that they work with and they came from different backgrounds. And um, that actually got fairly popular considering that it was a very small budget film. And also I should mention that during the early stages of the film, when I was still living with my parents, our next door neighbor uh, knocked on the door and he said, Hey, we just moved in next door. We wanted to, meet the neighbors. And so they told them about me and uh, Chuck was the name of the neighbor. And he, he said he wanted to meet me and have lunch with me. So i went to go have lunch and I, I was waiting outside the cafe for him and I hadn't met him before. And all I knew was just that my parents said that he wanted to meet me. So this guy like appears and he's well-dressed and he's just kind of shuffling towards me and he sits down next to me and he says, you know, hi, I'm Chuck. And I was like, I'm Philip. And I told him uh, about the film that I was working on. And he says to me, how much do you need? 5,000, 10,000. And I said, mm. well, what do you expect from me here? And he says, all I expect from you is for you to be the best you that you can be. Wow. So he ended up investing tens of thousands of dollars in the documentary. And beyond that, he hired a woman who he knew who used to work in the film industry named Deirdre Drahaj. And uh, she had recently moved to North Carolina from LA. And so he hired her to help me edit the thing. And I learned a lot about storytelling actually by doing that because sure. Um, mm-hmm. 
I had not really, I left film school before we really got into that part. I mean, all I really got from film school is, you know, the different types of shots you can come up with. And, and I watched a ton of movies, but I never really learned how to tell a story. I'm still working on that really. But <laughs> um, so Deirdre helped me with that. Every, every Saturday I would bring in my iMac computer and I would put it on her dining room table and we would sit there and we would edit the film because I had all this footage and I had shot like a lot of interviews. And the way that I had done it was that I, I was working a full-time job as a, a grocery clerk in, in the produce department to be specific. And so um, uh, before my closing shift at two o'clock, I went to the local public access TV station. I checked out, a bunch of camera equipment and a tripod and, and microphone. And I t- brought it back to my house. I worked my shift. And then the next day before my next shift at two, I spent the morning doing interviews using the equipment. So this was very much like an up from your bootstraps kind of project. Like this was it. I'm not saying that it was hard, but it took a lot of effort on my part to oh, sure, yeah. make it happen. Cause I didn't have, you know, the equipment that I needed until this miracle neighbor came in and he ended up letting me uh, purchase a new camera with some money that he gave me. And, and it was great, but it's still, oh, God, God bless that neighbor. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's since passed away actually. So Aww. indeed God bless him. He was a great guy and yeah. he really did believe in me. And he stuck with me over the years, even after the film was done. And he, he, he wanted to remain involved in my future projects too, which he was very instrumental for later ones as well. Um, and so that film ended up getting in a few film festivals. It won some awards, like inexplicably, it won some awards in the entertainment industry. Like it won an, uh, an honorable mention at the voice awards. And, um, it won like an editing award at this LA film festival. So it did fairly well. And I screened it a lot around the state of North Carolina at various functions at like at NAMI functions, the national Alliance for the mentally oh. ill. Yeah, um, yeah. So I, I, it just seemed like they were a very friendly organization to what I was doing. So I ended up having these like grassroots screenings all over the state. And that was very gratifying too. So uh, where was I? So then after that, um, I went and worked a job in the private sector as a, uh, video editor of sorts for a corporation and the corporation was a terrible place and mm-hmm, there people were getting, they were getting fired there every week and it was, there was a toxic environment. There was a lot of intimidation and the work itself was lousy. And so basically I escaped from that situation by going to grad school. Yay. And uh, yeah, exactly. And uh, <laughs> I found out that in at Duke university, which was just, a hop, skip, and a jump away from me. They had a new program. This was the first year it was being offered in experimental and documentary arts MFA. Mm. So this is Duke's first MFA. Duke is not known for their arts, really. They're more of a law school, medical school, basketball Mm -hmm. team school, (laughs) Um, but not really for the arts. So I enrolled and I got in. Well, I got in and I enrolled And it was a very, very eye-opening couple of years for me. And the main takeaway from it was that I would say that it changed me from a 
feeling person to a thinking person. And I would say that it, it was extremely formative and not unlike joining the military. That's, hmm. that's a bit of a uh, exaggeration. It wasn't as bad as joining the military. It wasn't no, bad. I hope at it all. wasn't like full metal jackets boot camp or anything. <laughs> no, 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 it wasn't. What I'm, what I'm just trying to say is that it changed me and it changed my personality and it even changed my physical features in the way that I looked at the world, like the way that I smiled, the way that I kind of watched films and I, it just changed things. It changed me into like a Duke type of student and, and this new program, I didn't necessarily feel it until I had already graduated and I was trying to make sense of everything that they had tried to teach me. Um, but flash forward a little bit further, um, along the way, I met my wife, a woman who became my wife. We fell in love and got married in uh, 2016. And um, I, was ha- I had my own podcast with a, with a oh. friend of mine that is actually, it's no, longer, it's no longer happening, but it's still on Spotify. It's called In the Queue Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil. And we did it for like three years. Um, and... It was it was a movie reviewing podcast, and we we sometimes took a look at uh, the video essays of Tony Joe, Every Frame of Painting, and um, this is kind of an embarrassing story. And I find I, I, whenever I talk about it, I end up saying it over and over again, and even though it's embarrassing. But um, I had been reaching out to to Tony and another video essayist named Kevin B Lee. Um, on Twitter. And um, we watched this video essay that I thought was done by Kevin B. Lee. And so we were going to talk about it on the podcast. And I just tweeted at Kevin, Hey, we're, we're just so you know, we mentioned you, or we're going to mention you in this podcast that we're doing today. And he said, thanks. Thanks for the heads up. And uh, we actually weren't talking about his work. It was actually a Tony Joe video essay. So, but what happened was, uh, Kevin B. Lee and I had like some kind of a connection on Twitter. Now I was, I think I had slid into his DMS at that point. And so um, the time came where I wanted to send him a video essay that I had made about Werner Herzog. And this was a video that I had made a couple years prior uh, to get into Werner Herzog's rogue film school seminar which I did in 2010. And um, my submission was this like video essay called Werner Herzog needs to dream. And it was a Hmm. compilation of dreamy moments from his films. And it was actually structured um, in, in thirds. The first third was um, beautiful. The second third was horrible. And the third third was insane. And uh, this is this is on my Vimeo page. Uh, I don't think it's on my YouTube channel, but I sent it to, to Herzog's Rogue Film School, and then they were like, <laughs> "Okay, you can do the seminar." And so I did that, and then I made it. I took that video, and I just—it was like a real hail mary. I just sent it to Kevin, not knowing what he would even think of it, or why he would want to see it, or what it would have to do with anything. But he told me he liked it, and he says that at Fandor, this this video streaming service that he was working for, 
they were going to go ahead and stream Burden of Dreams, Les Blank's film about the making of a, a Herzog movie that right. summer. And he asked me if I would be willing to adapt the video essay for Fandor. And I was like, of course, like hell yes. And the video itself was already like 10 minutes long. And so I was interfacing with him and he, and I thought like, he probably wants it to be longer. And he's like, no, we just needed it to be about a minute. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so that was oh like boy. my introduction to the world of video essay making. And so, uh, I should say that all during this time, as I'm messaging with Kevin B. Lee, I have a, a terrible job as a tea salesman, which I hate. Oh, and my, we're getting ready, me and my wife, to drive across the country to move to California so she can go to grad school. So I'm thinking in my head, like, this is the confluence of many different destinies here because Fandor is based in San Francisco. And we're driving to the just what's going to be the outskirts of the Bay Area. Like, I'll get a job at Fandor making video essays, and it'll be perfect. That sounds like a dream. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was a dream at the time, and mm-hmm. it it didn't it did not happen in that manner because sure. I found out from Kevin that there wasn't a job to make video essays. It's just something that freelancers contributed every now and then. You couldn't make a living doing it. So I was still, you know, excited, and I and I made another video essay about um, what is Burton esque, which is like the Tim Burton style. Like, what is that right. really? Mm-hmm. And um, and then I made one about um, comparing the Seven Samurai to the Magnificent Seven. So I moved to California with my wife. I had to work at that shitty tea shop again. Uh, which was a franchise. So I, I just was at a different location. And then I also worked at a movie theater and I was, I didn't like either of those jobs at all, but I did them for months and months. And gradually I was getting more and more uh, responsibility from Fandor. And I remember in November of 2016, when everybody thought Hillary Clinton was going to get the presidency, um, they asked me to make a video essay about movies that have women presidents in them. Oh, and so they were they were they were very excited about this at Fandor. They were saying this is going to really, hmm. you know, make us uh, the toast of the internet because Hillary Clinton's going to be president, and we're going to make this video essay, and it's going to be a great yeah. tie-in, a cross cross promotion. It's well, going to go viral, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, it didn't happen, of course. Right, um, right. I made I made the video. I think it's still online somewhere, but it's uh, that's not what happened. So, um, and I just keep kind of doing my thing, making one or two video essays per, per month and I'm loving it. And I wish that I could do it more and more and more. Then in January, I find out Kevin B. Lee has resigned from Fandor and he, he quit because they did something behind his back that did not sit well with him. And he he warned me that uh, they had a problem with with communication and that they were not a trustworthy organization. Mm-hmm. And uh, it also turns out that he came to my town in California to give a lecture at the University of, of uh, Davis, and so I got to meet him in person around that time. 
And um, so that was cool. I've I've only met him in person once total in my life. Wow. And it was just that <laughs> time. But what ended up happening was when he quit Fandor, they started to give me eight video essays per month to do. Wow. That's, that seems like a lot. I mean, you yeah. put a lot of work into them. So yeah, I, they do take a lot of work if you want them to be good. Right. So <laughs> like, you, you know, you, you, you kind of singled out the number of 110 plus. Well, you know, a lot of those were fulfilling contracts. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> um, sure. A, a lot of them were kind of like the, the fluffy style of Fandor video essay that are kind of, you know, not very heavy on, on, uh, content or or substance i should say and Mm. uh, what i tried to do is make at least one great video essay per month and there but there was this period when i first started making eight per month where i was just ready for this and i had like a a document of like all these ideas for video essays and i think that that period from like february to march to april i started to get bolder in my in my visions and um I made a few video essays that are kind of like classics, if I can call them that. Like I made one called The Art of the Focus Pull, which was also called Nice Rack. <laughs> and um, that one gets still gets a lot of attention. And then I made Kurosawa Color, which is about the use of color in Kurosawa films. Mm-hmm. I made one of my personal favorites, Robbie Mueller Looks at Los Angeles. Oh, you know, I'm a fan of that one. Yeah, I see you liking it on Twitter. Yeah, I love that one. Oh my God. I, I just, oh. I, it's one of the best ideas I've ever had. I was so happy to do When that. I saw Paris, Texas, I just went, this is probably the most beautifully shot movie maybe ever. And then I just like, every time I saw that Robbie Mueller shot the movie, and you, you know, you even brought in something great like To Live and Die in LA, which is, yeah. you know, we mentioned Freakin', but I think that's really under underrated. And, Oh, it's so well shot. And the fact that, yeah, you, you also bring into, you know, how he looks at Los Angeles and every frame almost looks like a painting when he does it. Like even a gas station in Paris, Texas, the Mm. colors, I'm just kind of like, how did he do that? How did he get it to look that perfect? You know, I don't know. Yeah. I'm I'm in awe of him. So you mentioned (laughs) that he was your favorite DP. Is that the case? Yeah. 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 He's, he's definitely one of mine. Um, I think he's, he's a true artist and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he, he he never really did like the sweeping epics. You know, he wasn't like yeah the, the kind of cameraman to do like vast landscapes. He was mostly working in cities and kind of there's a certain kind of interiority with his style where you know there's something poetic about it and it kind of gets at the what's going on on the inside of the character. Like exactly um, one yeah. one shot in particular from my video essay that I'll mention. It's from the movie Barfly, and oh, um, yeah. I, I love Barfly. It's I think it's it's a mm-hmm. wonderful film. And there's a scene where Mickey Rourke is down on his knees, and he's washing his face using this little tiny trickle coming from a fire hydrant. Oh yeah, and mm-hmm. um, the way it's lit is the correct way, which is you have the light behind. Uh, the, the water so that it'll clearly illuminate the water. You can see it clearly, even though it's a little trickle and there's like all these like reds and like neon colors. And it's like, just like, just so gritty, 
but also really kind of beautiful and, and humanist, you know, because mm-hmm. here's this guy who's doing the most basic of human necessities. He's washing himself, you know, and it's like, he's doing that on his knees in the street, in this huge unforgiving city. And you have to give credit to the director, Barbie Schroeder, as well as Mickey Rourke, but God damn it. You have to give credit to Robbie Mueller for (laughs) capturing those images. Yeah. Well, that's the thing too, about watching some of your essays. It makes you want to watch the whole movies again. Like I hadn't, I haven't seen Barfly in maybe a decade, but God, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's a, that's a beautifully shot movie. And, Still my still my favorite favorite Mickey Rourke performance I think probably um, uh, I mean the yeah. wrestler's great but uh, there's just something about him essentially playing Bukowski right <laughs> yeah he was at his prime back then too yeah definitely um, yeah I haven't seen like a lot of Mickey Rourke movies but I do I like him quite a bit he's got the whole I always thought that the recipe for a badass is somebody who is strong and sensitive. Mm. That's what a badass yeah. is. And I think that he is that he was that kind of actor. He was that kind of smoldering Jack Nicholson, Marlon Brando guy in his peak. I'm curious at, especially after looking at some of your essays, what do you think is the key to creating a good video essay? Cause I mean, it, it's to me it's a lot of them just seem like you find these interesting correlations and certainly mm-hmm. it is this kind of marriage between film and, and, cultural criticism in a way, but like finding connections. Be- I mean, I, I think even at a younger age, I found connections between the Coen brothers and Sam Raimi just because of the cinematography. You know, I went, Oh, yeah. that shot, that shot in blood simple is a lot like a Sam Raimi shot in evil dead, you know, or, or, or raising Arizona. There's plenty of examples like that. And you find these interesting connections that, uh, you know, are, are really fascinating to go back to and explore. So just uh, talk about that, the process well, of it. I guess the, the, the thing you really need the most to make a good video essay is, is a good argument with good supporting examples. Hmm. And uh, I don't necessarily think that all video essays need to be an argument, but it helps to think of it that way because, because, an argument is, you know, it's a, a passionate opinion that you have. It's, a, it's there's conflict, and uh, that's interesting to watch. Uh, people want to hear, you know, ideas that are inflammatory or controversial or at least interesting. And so, when you have that idea, that spark, and you can support it with good examples, and if you're if you're saying something that that you are interested in as well then um, chances are other people will, will be interested too, I would say. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that completely. I mean, sometimes I'll, I will like open a Google doc and just jot down some notes that I don't know what this is going to become. Maybe it'll become an essay. You know, I mean, you're a writer Mm. too. And uh, I, I, I can sense that, like I read your really great piece on the beach boys, smiley smile. Oh, thanks. yeah, no, I mean, again, I'm a music guy too, so I get it. And I think a lot of a lot of filmmakers obviously love music almost as much in some cases just because it is a part of the filmmaking process, sound and music, clearly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, I mean, and then favorite filmmakers like Paul Thomas Anderson or St- and Stanley Kubrick, of course, a lot of their scenes are driven by the way they use music for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, you know, certainly finding the right, 
balance of all that in the video essay, uh, you certainly must create like an outline and just imagine you have like a hard drive full of movies and, <laughs> and images that you sort of integrate into like uh, Adobe Premiere or something like that. Which, what, how do you, how do you just basically like when you're sitting down with all this footage or all these ideas, how do you start? How do you begin to know what it's going to become? So um, at the time, like a lot of the video essays that you've seen and that you're referencing are from the, first period where I worked for Fandor, which was in 2016 to 2018. And then mm-hmm. they went out of business and they fired like half their staff. Well, I should say they laid them off and then they kind of disappeared. And then a year or so ago, actually a year, a half year and a half ago, they resurfaced and me and some of the other video essayists got together and approached them about being compensated for the debt that Fandor owed us. Because when they shut their doors, they didn't pay their freelancers. Hmm. So a lot Hmm. of people were owed hundreds, sometimes thousands of dollars. And so um, to the, to the credit of the, of (sighs) the, uh, (laughs) the the credit of the people who were running Fandor at the time, it's already changed again, (laughs) but the guy, for example, the, the guy who, the guy who gave permission to get us paid again, he no longer works there. <laughs> oh, uh, I don't think it's because of that, but um, yeah, but we got paid finally. And then we came back and now it's different. And mm-hmm. the video essays are, are not the same. They don't have the same style guide. They don't have the same objective. So if you can call it like the classic period of video essays for Fandor, it's basically come and gone. So I don't make yeah. video essays like that anymore. But I can tell you that at the time, most of the time, they came out of chaos. They came out sure. of uh, some kind of an idea that I had to somehow make work. And I knew that I had to somehow match the words that I was going to be speaking on the narration with the images that were in the video. Yeah. And... uh I, I did not have like a very organized way of doing that. It was not painless at all. It was kind of like, let's juxtapose these things. Let's experiment. Let's see what happens. And let's really try the hardest that, that I can try. And then we'll see what we have. And that approach, while it was kind of a painful way of doing it, because <laughs> it was so, so messy, uh, it yielded some good work, actually. And I was happy about that. And I think that it's very common in the world of video essays to make a first draft and to very, be very methodical and, and motivated with all your decisions and then take a look at what you've created and just, just throw it out completely. Like, just oh, like, sure. just like, you know, like this just isn't working. This doesn't have the necessary fire or interest that, the essay needs to have. So for example, like I have never been like trained to make video essays. Uh, I, I had some guidance when I was working for Fandor, but for example, I I've never like <laughs> studied it. I have just kind of been following my own type of muse. And so my, my I'm sure having a background in experimental film informed that a little bit too. It yeah. did, and experimental and documentary as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so I kind of applied what I knew 
to the medium of video essays. And sometimes it makes me feel like I'm a talented amateur. Um, but then when I look at the end results and when, when I get, you know, positive comments from people about the end results, then I think, uh, well, I guess I am a professional. I would say so <laughs> for sure. I mean, and even when, um, even when I saw brushes with life, I was like, yeah, I mean, clearly kind of the overall thesis is, you know, making art is incredibly therapeutic and people will mm-hmm. approach a blank canvas in a, in a variety of ways. And certainly I'm sure there are different approaches to when you open up Adobe premiere or something like that, there's a, everybody can approach the art of a video essay differently and some can be very structured. Some can just be very stream of consciousness and some of it can be, uh, you know, just a, 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 a bridge between the two in a way. And I, I, I appreciate the fact that there's just a lot of passion, but also hard work into it. I mean, certainly podcasting for me just kind of went, was a little easier just because you can turn on a microphone and just ramble and mm-hmm. hopefully do it with, you know, somebody interesting that can also lead the conversation. Cause uh, yeah, sometimes uh, monologuing is a, is a challenge, but sure. Uh, I, 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 I wish I could have gotten more into video editing outside of just like dabbling, you know, outside of doing my own little home movies, or if a friend has a project they want to work on, I'll help them with that. But it's, it's, it does take a lot of discipline to just, I mean, that's where a lot of it all comes together is in that is in the editing room. Oh, you know? definitely. Uh, absolutely. And um, I think that there's a, it's, it's extremely e- editing heavy and you could, you, the, the lines can often be blurred between who, who, are you directing or are you editing a video essay? Mm. Because like some of my work, I will explicitly say, that this was edited and directed by me. Like, like I made this video essay called cinema with a period oh, at yeah. the end um, for the film Madrid film festival a couple of years ago. And I did give myself a directorial credit on that one because, because it just fit because I, I wasn't just kind of stringing clips together. I was, I was crafting a real thesis um, using disparate examples and, I was like, hell yeah, I'm going to give myself a directorial credit. Um, but I think it's important if I may offer a suggestion to you, Jim, if you're, if you're still interested in pursuing video essays, um, it should start out like play and it should start out. Like you have a film that you wish to inhabit in some way, even better. You have a couple of different sources. You have, you know, maybe a film, maybe you have some documentary footage that you shot yourself or maybe you got something from a, an, an online archive. And for some reason, these things just kind of seem like they belong together. And so you just spend some time playing with it and trying to see, maybe you do some split screen, maybe you do some quick cuts. Um, but trusting your intuition is how I do it because that's what le- leads me to good results. And, I, and I, I've been doing it long enough that I can tell when my intuition is onto something. And so you may not realize what you're doing while you're playing, but eventually if you take a step back and look at it or show it to somebody else, then they may see something there like, Oh, this is what you're doing while you were in that trance. This is what you came up with. And this, this is what this means to me. And you actually made an argument. And that's, 
that's why people love to make video essays and that's why they keep doing it because because it, it can be very gratifying yeah no i mean i certainly watching yours were very inspiring and i, I would say that um one of the two most recent examples of filmmakers that made me go, wow, I, I would love to not necessarily like replicate exactly what they do, of course, but be in the same vein or just capture what they capture in, in spirit is um, mm-hmm. Kirsten Johnson's camera person. Yeah. I've seen uh, and uh, Terrence Davies of time in the city. Oh, I haven't seen that one. Those are stunning examples of what you can do with the form and, and certainly like just since you've seen camera person, you just know that all that wasn't that primarily just footage that she had uh, on the cutting room floor from other projects that she worked on and just sort of strung it together in a way. Yes. And yeah, that film actually came to me in a, a moment when I really needed to see it because I was working on a project that I had spent 10 years on. It was called Abandoned, and it was a documentary. It was the follow-up to Brushes With Life. And it was about a letter that I found in an abandoned house that seemed to implicate a drug company in the death of, a, of an infant uh, who oh, had wow. used like faulty uh, eczema cream. And I literally, without even exaggerating, I spent 10 years on this film, and it wasn't quite gelling and that is because i was trying to tell two stories and Mm. the story the story number one was about you know the letter i found and the this like you know infant who had died and the kind of the real life mystery but then the second story was where i was going inward and i was going on a spiritual journey of my own uh kind of reacting to the language of the letter which used a very kind of flowery religious type of vernacular. Um, And it made me think about my own feelings about God. So I had these two stories that I was trying to tell and it was just not working. And I was showing it to people, friends of mine, filmmakers, and I even took it to Duke. And when I was a student, I I showed it to Laura Poitras, the, documentary filmmaker. Oh yeah. She's Um, incredible. Yeah. Yeah. She was a visiting artist that year. And, Mm. um, she said to me that projects like this never work until they do. (laughs) And, (laughs) and for me, they just, it just was not working. Now that is until I saw a camera person, because when I saw a camera person, I thought, okay, now I have the permission that I needed to (laughs) tell the story in a, non-linear experimental way. And that's how I'll tell both stories. And uh, rather than try to make them two distinct threads, I'll just combine everything into one kind of montage. Yeah. And I ended up remixing the documentary and I made what's known as abandoned movie and abandoned movies on my Vimeo page. It's actually the, the banner video that plays when you get to my Vimeo page. And it's also dear to my heart. And I can tell you, it got into zero film festivals. Oh man. <laughs> um, well, it was like, I'm going to watch it <laughs> when you. we're done. I'm going to watch it. Absolutely. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Both, both Sharon and I are, 
are champions of your work. I, I, I was there for when she, uh, shown, uh, she had shown brushes with life at the very first mental mm-hmm. illness. And then, um, she brought to attention that you had a follow up here called how to explain your mental illness to Stanley Kubrick. And I just yes. went, okay, I'm on board for that based on the title alone. <laughs> <laughs> um, but just talk about, yeah, the, in, the initial inception for, for this new endeavor of yours, what, what you sort of set out to achieve by telling this story, because um, I mean, I think, I think most of the work you've done out there and certainly most work by filmmakers is quote unquote personal, but mm-hmm. you put yourself into this film in a very vulnerable, honest and genuine way. Uh, and yet you still know when to bring levity <laughs> into the, into the forefront too. Right, so it's right. all, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's fantastic. Just talk a little bit about what made you want to make it. Well, it was actually the confluence of a few different projects and ideas that came together in um, the winter of 2020. And the reason that they all came together is because years ago I had wanted to make a video essay that was just a straightforward video essay about mental illness in movies and Mm. how to explain what mental illness is like by using clips from movies. So, I never really made that video essay. I think probably because it was pretty personal and I wasn't sure people would go for it. And by that time, Fandor was defunct and um, there was no real guaranteed outlet to stream the video. And I just, you know, I often have like multiple ideas, like spinning plates, and I don't always follow through on all of them. And so that was one that I didn't follow through on. Then I started to meet some people in my new home state of Florida after I left California. And I made friends with this guy named Derek, who is the manager at a books a million bookstore. And while the pandemic was going on, I went to visit Derek and I saw that his hair and his beard had grown quite long. And I thought, and I said to him out loud, Derek, you look a lot like Stanley Kubrick right now. <laughs> and I said, we've got to do something like where we capitalize off of this appearance that you have. And I had this winter jacket at home in North Carolina that my parents called the Kubrick jacket because it was a very <laughs> kind of fluffy, kind of like green LL Bean jacket. It looks a lot like what he wore when he was making The Shining. And right. I, I know this because I've seen the the documentary about The Shining. Mm-hmm. So my parents mailed me the jacket, and I said, "Derek, we're gonna we're gonna make a movie with you as Stanley Kubrick." And I thought, okay, this is what it's gonna be. I summon Stanley Kubrick into my living room, and then I show him these movie clips to show him why mental illness is what it is, and to confront him and say the movies that you make that show the mentally ill are transgressive. They're, you know, out of date. They're, uh, politically incorrect. And I needed to confront him about this. So that was how the premise started. And around the same time, uh, this is just, this is just how it happened because the movie had been planned for, I would say months when I started to get ill 
And I was seeing a psychiatrist here in Florida who, who didn't really know how I would react to uh, a medication change. But hmm. um, I was seeing him because I was getting these yellow splotches on my arm. And we thought that it had something to do with uh, this new medication that he had put me on because uh, this other medication that I had been on for about 15 years uh, might have been causing me liver problems. Oh, so yeah. he, he switched me to a different drug. And what ended up happening was I had a, a manic episode. Mm. Now, the manic episode did not stop me from filming this movie. <laughs> so we we filmed for two nights, and we filmed all of Kubrick's scenes, and I used my phone to do the filming. Uh, I shot in 4K on my phone, my iPhone SE. And they were two hallucinatory nights. Uh but they're what we shot is very well represented in the finished film. And then, as I have said before, the period following that was several months of healing and editing. And sure. the, 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 the filming was done and the, and the, the film was begun during a manic episode, but it was completed over a period of months of healing. So that means that the finished product is not the product of a crazy person, but it's the product of somebody who's a reasonable filmmaker. Yeah. And, um, so, it's, and it. it's almost like the process could have helped, like the process of making this could have you, helped well, to heal in a way. Outside well, of obviously medication helping too and other factors. Yeah, it, it helped. It helped in the sense that I could not stop thinking about this movie. Mm. And I had to do it. <laughs> like, uh, I, I, I liken it to Martin Scorsese's masterclass where he says mm-hmm. in the beginning, you know, if you're looking for a career in the movie industry, this class is not for you. But if you have a project in your mind that you can't rest until you make happen, then I could be speaking to you. And that's kind of how this was. It was like a project that I just could not stop thinking about. And I had to basically take some time out of the shooting and the filming to rest in order to heal or else oh, of course. Yeah. there would be, there would be nothing. There'd be no film, nothing. And um, the most important thing that a, a sick person can uh, have when they're recovering from mental illness is sleep and medication. And sleep in particular is extremely nourishing and and necessary. So I would be sleeping and I would be like tossing and turning and like I look up and I feel like I would be seeing Kubrick's face in the ceiling fan. And it was just (laughs) like I was like having all these like visions and listening to wild music and thinking, oh, okay, I want to use this music in the film. And um, it was just like a fully bipolar experience. You know, it was just like when you're making broad strokes like that uh, in the early stages of a creative project, the mania can be helpful. Now, when, when it's time to fine tune it and, you know, make all the audio levels correct and, 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 and all the kind of minute details, mania is not helpful. You need to be balanced. You need to be right. even keel and focused. Yeah. And in, in a way that's, yeah, I, I, I can imagine 
I've my my struggles have been you know with depression and anxiety, and sometimes they're at war mm-hmm. with one another. And if I'm too anxious, there are times where I just yeah I sort of collapse into a depression because the mm-hmm. anxiety is so exhausting and intense. But it, I, yeah, and I I like what you've brought to this film, obviously in a very personal way, but just also critiquing Kubrick (laughs) and, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, accepting him in the same way that you're sort of accepting yourself. And I think Sharon Mm -hmm. mentioned that in her interview towards the end as well. And I found that to be a really beautiful thing to experience even while watching the movie where it's like, it's a slow process, but you get to this moment of realization and acceptance. Mm -hmm. That's really, you know, it it adds an even stronger emotional layer to it because yes, you're mentioning how, yeah, transgressive and certainly things that he portrayed. Uh, yeah, it's kind of um, a one dimensional view of psychosis or mania or any sort of things. And certainly people can look at uh, what's what happens to a lot of his characters in, in, in throughout his entire mm-hmm. filmography. They, they do experience something like that. But um, no, I just I, I often think about that. Um, sort of subjectivity of experience informing our reactions and, you know, people can view mental illness differently in the same way that we view movies very differently. And I like that you decide to put all that into this film, just like, you know, and talking to him and sort of talking to yourself at the same time too. Yeah. Um, you know, I think you have a beautiful interpretation there about how I'm actually talking to myself as well as I talk to him. Mm-hmm. And it kind of actually reminds me of uh, what is that? Is it The Shining where they they say that whenever Jack talks to a ghost, there's always a mirror present? Ah, uh, yes, yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> I love Room Two Thirty Seven. I gotta say, I'm one of those obsessives <laughs> who likes who loves theorizing and finding those little Easter eggs and details. Yeah, and um, I I just really feel glad that I completed the film and I got it out there and that it's being seen because it was very difficult to finish. And I I think about Werner Herzog's advice to his students at the Ruhig film school, which was that there's such a thing as half a loaf of bread and you can eat it, but there's no such thing as half a film. Mm. Finish your films. Yeah. Because a film is, if a film is only half done, it's like zero done. It has to be completely finished. It has to be out there. It has to be something that you can share to people or else it doesn't exist. And it takes a real push to, to complete films, especially early films. And if you're not, you know, in the best mental space either. So I think that, uh, I'm, I'm proud of myself that it seems to be, getting a good reception and I can't wait to kind of keep shepherding it out into the world. And the end I'm, I'm, I'm already engaging with people like you and other people online to talk about the film. And I feel like it's something that could possibly, you know, make a difference or, or become popular because it's, it's so out there. It's something so unique. There's really nothing yeah. else out there like it. And I think that Gen Z in particular, they seem to be very comfortable talking about mental illness more so yeah, than thank goodness for that. Yeah. yeah. Than me and previous generations, like they seem to be like, 
really kind of unabashedly willing to be vulnerable. And so just the topic itself is interesting to them. And, and it's weird. It's a weird film. It's a funny film at times. It's, oh, yeah. it's a topical film. And if you, if you're a Kubrick fanatic, you should see it. And I can tell you it's full of Kubrick references that are snuck in there. Like not just clips from his movies, but other, other references too. And I think well, uh, we might have to do a room 237 <laughs> on your film. <laughs> yeah. Um, Which would be fun. Yeah. Yeah. It, it would be, it's, and it's fun for people to kind of pick up, pick those things up. I would think, you know, they were deliberately put in there because I think that they would be a treat. Kubrick's my favorite director. I've seen his movies over and over and I never get tired of them. And what's your favorite Kubrick movie? 2001. You have a favorite? Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. the right answer. I would say, <laughs> <laughs> especially if you see it on the big screen in 70 millimeter, which oh. I did in, oh, uh, boy. in 2018 in Sacramento, California, I saw it on the big screen in 70 millimeter and it was great. They specifically oh, called Lord. it the unrestored version. And I think because huh. they didn't, they didn't want people to tinker with some of the special effects to modernize them. Yeah, no, I, like I said, I got, I certainly got out a lot out of watching your film and I'm, I'm excited to share it with other people and let people know about it. Certainly I have a lot of cinephile friends where I'm like, you got to see this. If you just watch one movie from mental Filmness, I guarantee you're going to like this because if at the very least you love Stanley Kubrick and there's a lot to get out of this movie besides just, Oh, let's, let's uh, yeah. Be a fanboy about, you know, movies in general. And you have that, you have yeah. that element in there. You'd be like, certainly- come for the Kubrick stay for the mental illness. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, definitely. And um, who knows, maybe you'll do like how to explain your mental illness to Orson Welles or how to explain your mental (laughs) illness to Alfred Hitchcock. It's like you can do spinoffs, right? (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Well, there's a market for it. Sure. Yeah, no, definitely. And I I just I'm so glad it's out there. It's I'm sure it'll stimulate conversation, too. But um, what are you working on next in the future? Or is there, a, you know, just plug away, basically. Where do, where do you want people to follow you at and mm-hmm. uh, learn more about you? Well, um, I gather there'll be some links to this. Oh, yes. Like, um, oh, yes. Well, I'm, I'm, I I definitely keep people up to date on Twitter with what I'm doing. I also Great. have an Instagram account, which is called Bold Decade, and that refers to the decade I spent making abandoned movie. Mm. Um and uh, those are two places on social media where you can find me. I'm usually working on something. And the thing that I'm working on now is just a fun mashup of the movies Valley Girl and Repo Man. Awesome. Uh, just because That's they're, both, terrific. they're both Los Angeles movies from nearly the same time, 1983 mm-hmm. to 84. And um, I, I, I just like to kind of confuse them and, and make people think that they don't really know which one they're looking at by finding clips uh, from, uh, from both movies that kind of could sit well next to each other. And you wouldn't be able to tell which movies they were from. And as I've been playing with this idea, it's, it's going to be short, like maybe just a minute and a half, but like I started to find like, well, the whole thing is, is a split screen there are some less obvious juxtapositions that I can make that, that work in a way that, that they're, they're not obvious, but they're still interesting. And they still kind of have a videographic quality 
where you they, they make each other come alive. So that's something that I'm going to put on my YouTube channel pretty soon. And then I have a few other video essays in mind. Like I have a big Wes Anderson epic that I got planned Ooh. that I'm working on. Um, yeah, that's going to be good, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> and um, also, I- I'm involved with a project that's going to be published on In Transition, the video essay journal. Um, they're an academic journal for videographic film criticism, which is what the hoity-toity name for it is. <laughs> um, and I, I made a video for this really cool contest um, that should be getting published next month, I'm thinking. Um, but the uh, the name of the contest is Once Upon a Screen, where uh, somebody would uh, write down like a traumatic memory from their childhood that involved uh, the watching a media object. They would give that to a random person. And then that person would then make a video essay based on that script. Oh my God. It's a really cool idea. And I made one called radical elsewhere based on a, um, a, uh, a, a, an idea by Deleuze, the French philosopher that the radical elsewhere in movies is the off screen space where things happen, you don't see them and they don't exist, but they insist. (laughs) So for example, uh, in the movie sling blade, the scene where, uh, Billy Bob Thornton kills Dwight Yoakam with the sling blade. Do you remember that part? Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. So like, uh, the, the composition of the, of the shot is, uh, Billy Bob Thornton, stands up and the camera tilts up. So when it tilts up, it excludes Dwight Yoakam from the frame and you can't see him anymore. And so he takes this, the lawnmower blade and just wham, wax him. And you don't see anything because it happens off screen, but it insists, you know, it's there. Mm -hmm. You, You just absolutely feel it, even though they don't show it to you. So that was a really cool project to work on. And I'm looking forward to, bringing that out uh, to make it public too. Me too. No, that all sounds great. Yeah. I, like I said, I'm, I've become a fan uh, overall. I certainly enjoyed what I've watched and I can't wait to watch more. And you certainly cracked me up with um, how movies get high and uh, (laughs) the uh, iguana moment. Dude, (laughs) I lost it. That was great. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. No, you do great work, Philip. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to, um, yeah, keep in touch for sure, and I'll promote what what whatever you got going. So definitely, definitely, awesome. Well, thanks so much for spending time and talking with me today for uh, a cool little bonus discussion on Directors Club. Uh, wishing you all the best, and uh, thanks again for your making your wonderful film. Well, thank you. couldn't help myself by ending with some of the creepiest music in all of Stanley Kubrick's work. Uh, that's, of course, from Eyes Wide Shut. But thank you so much to Philip. Thank you so much to Sharon. And thank you so much for listening to uh, this wonderful conversation. And please check out mentalfilmness.com as well as all of Philip's work linked in the show notes. And uh, if you're a fan of Kubrick, definitely watch How to Explain 
your mental illness to Stanley Kubrick. Take care, everybody, and visit directorsclubpodcast.com. And uh, hopefully you run into you next month. All the best. Stay safe. Right the fuck in. <laughs>